WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The global scale decline of animal biodiversity, defaunation is the scientific term, represents one of the most alarming consequences of human impacts on the planet. That's the opening statement from a study published in the scientific journal Biological Reviews. In southeastern North Carolina, large swaths of trees are disappearing. What was a natural area, buffering one neighborhood from another, can vanish entirely between sunup and sundown as humans driving tree removal machines scrape everything away down to the dirt. It's now a canvas for a new building, and the vegetation that lived there is pushed into a pile and ignited as rubbish. So what exactly is burning? It's time to find out. Environmental scientists say it's habitat for indigenous plants and animals, habitat in one of the most biodiverse areas along the east coast of the United States. In each episode of our new series called In the Wild Coastal Plain, we'll meet a plant or an animal and we'll learn about it, how it lives, what it eats, what we know of its role in the ecosystem, maybe what we don't know. And we'll find out why our guide in the wild coastal plain, Andy Wood, considers each single species as important as a rivet in the International Space Station. You'll hear more about that later. You can find episodes of In the Wild Coastal Plain on our website, in the Coastline feed at whqr.org. Of course, longtime WHQR listeners will remember Andy Wood in his popular commentaries on local wildlife launched in 1987. He's compiled the most memorable pieces into a book entitled Backyard Carolina, Two Decades of Public Radio Commentary. But he did continue for almost a third decade until 2015. He now directs the Coastal Plain Conservation Group, a nonprofit dedicated to just that, conserving what's left of the coastal plain in southeastern North Carolina. And he is our guide in this new series, In the Wild Coastal Plain. He joins me now. Andy Wood, welcome to Coastline. Thank you for that very nice introduction. This is awesome. I'm so glad we're doing this together. Uh, me too. Now, this first episode that, that we did is focused on beavers. And when you and I first started talking about this, you you pitched beavers as an idea because you called it a keystone species. What did you mean by that? A, a keystone species is a plant or a species of wildlife that provides ecosystem services to the benefit of other plants and wildlife. That's one way to broadly view a keystone species, keystone being that that rock that's put into the corner of a building to provide structural stability. So beavers provide structural stability to the ecosystem that they inhabit, including the ecosystem they help build, that, that they, not by design, they, beavers just do what they do instinctively, but they do it with the goal of creating a habitat that benefits them. So there is a little self-serving nature 
to a beaver. They impound a stream or uh, a stream, moving water, to create a pool in which they'll be able to dwell relatively safe from ground-based predators. And in the process, they create an aquatic ecosystem that benefits quite literally hundreds of other species, uh, hundreds of different plants, and maybe even thousands in some cases of different kinds of animals. Of course, I'm talking about from little tiny protozoans on up to black bear. So, And that's all great for in the middle of a natural area where they don't bother anybody. But they are sort of um, pesky, well, nuisances, right, in areas where people are trying to develop for residential or commercial building. I mean, w- this is what we hear. Developers go into places where there are waterways and neighborhoods have been built around these waterways and they need to get rid of the beaver dams because they're a problem? What's what's happening there? Our first approach to beavers is to do as much harm as possible. And that starts by trapping the beavers, killing them, because you can't relocate them in North Carolina. They have to be euthanized. Um, and then we destroy their dam to drain the water that could actually be managed with our help using a very simple design called the Clemson Beaver Pipe, which it's a pipe that goes through the beaver's dam, and you adjust the pipe to whatever elevation you want the beaver pond maintenance uh, to be established. So... um, We could work with beavers, and people are, especially out in the West where water is such a a real problem. And Uh, that's that's a new trend, isn't it? It's relatively new. In the West, didn't people decades ago or go to great lengths to get rid of beavers? For their pelt and then also because they were flooding timberland or farmland or residential land. And, And we now know that what the beaver provides isn't just valuable habitat for plants and wildlife. Their ponds are providing aquifer recharge. Um, Their ponds absorb vast amounts of stormwater. So they reduce flooding, oddly enough. And in the process, they're also holding that water for a period of time, allowing it to percolate through the soil to reach the underground aquifer from which we withdraw water to drink. So Imagine a wastewater treatment plant. That's pretty pesky, too. It stinks, and it's discharging (laughs) wildly polluted water, even though we call it treated. Wastewater coming out of a municipal wastewater treatment plant is horribly polluted. Um, Gen X is just the tip of the chemical iceberg in the Cape Fear River. Um, So, yeah, we could think of beavers as pesky, but... Who would want a water treatment plant next to them, either wastewater or drinking water? They're noisy. And um, so there's give and take with everything we try to do. Beavers are just such a, a beneficial creature on the landscape responsible for um, providing many benefits, not just, again, not just to plants and wildlife, 
but to us. And so we have to figure out how to best work with them. And um, they won't mind our enlisting their services for free. They'll, they'll do what they do. And in this first episode of In the Wild Coastal Plain, which we're going to play for you in the next segment, you lay out pretty clearly how all of that works and why beavers are beneficial to water quality. I want to get to the name of this series that we've started together, In the Wild Coastal Plain. We, there, we went through some experimental names. We tried some things on. It sort of happened in fits and starts. You completely nixed in the wild Cape Fear, <laughs> and you were like, nope, that's not what we're talking about. And I was like, but Andy, it's uh, journalists all over this region hop on the air and they say, well, here in the Cape Fear region, and you say that's actually not correct. What What are we in? We are in, of course, Southeast North Carolina, and as many people have heard me say, just for orientation, we're on the same latitude as Los Angeles, and um, uh, as example, and we're, actually we're on the same latitude as Baghdad, and um, uh, so we are a, a compass point, and north of us is upstate New York. South of us is the Panama Canal. So our, those are our compass points, so to speak. But we're part of what's called the North American Coastal Plain or North American Atlantic Coastal Plain. And specifically in southeast North Carolina, we're a, a small piece of what's called a biodiversity hotspot. Biodiverse because this ecoregion this coastal plain, which extends basically Cape Cod to Alabama. Um, it contains over 1,500 different kinds of plants, so it's biodiverse. It is a hot spot because the Atlantic coastal plain has lost more than 70% of its natural habitat. Here in southeastern North Carolina, with the exception of uh, much of Brunswick County or parts of Brunswick and Pender County, um, well, we've even lost 70% here because even though you're looking at farmland, that's not natural land. The natural habitat has been greatly diminished. In New Hanover County, probably it's closer to 80, 85% of New Hanover County's natural habitats have, have either been fragmented or paved over completely. So we're in a biodiversity hotspot to be sure. And what's really tragic is just 30 years ago, New Hanover County could be counted as the most biodiverse county on the Atlantic coastal plain north of Florida. The single most diverse county, biodiverse county, on the entire Atlantic seaboard north of Florida. And that claim is not warranted today. Do you know what species we've lost over in, those last decades? Yeah, since in we... In New Hanover County yeah. or in this area? Yeah. Uh, entirely to extinction. Um, there are a few species, but actually there are several species. We don't know if they are extinct because we haven't found them yet. Um, but as example, just in the last couple of human generations, we've lost the Carolina parakeet, the ivory-bill woodpecker, um, Bachman's sparrow, or I'm sorry, Bachman's warbler, um, and 
several other species are on the brink of extinction here, the short-nosed sturgeon in the Cape Fear River, um, and several other things, including animals that I work with, two species of freshwater snails that um, once inhabited southeastern North Carolina, the Cape Fear ecoregion, uh, but they're gone from the wild due to saltwater intrusion as a consequence of dredging the Cape Fear River. So part of what we'll be doing in our program, I hope, is connecting dots. So we, we hear politicians and business people saying, we have to have a state port. Fine. Okay, build a state port. And we have to dredge the Cape Fear River. Uh, okay. Um, you're going to have consequences, unintended maybe, maybe unanticipated, but there will be consequences of dredging a major river that is draining 9,000 square miles of North Carolina's 54,000 square mile area. So one in six square miles of the state essentially drains into the Cape Fear River. Well, just as an example, and I realize this is a complicated question, yeah, but can you off. just <laughs> can you just give us an example of why dredging the Cape Fear River, for instance, is something that an environmentalist wouldn't like? Uh, the main problem is the Cape Fear River communicates directly with the Atlantic Ocean. So there is a free exchange of salty water. 200, 250 years ago, the controlling depth of the river was 6 to 12 feet. Now it's close to 48 feet deep. So that means salt water has been able to come up the Cape Fear River, and that's getting intruding into what is otherwise freshwater habitats, freshwater swamps, the realm of the beaver. Which, and all of the other plants and wildlife associated with Cape Fear River swamps. And that's one of the reasons that you are credited by a number of wildlife and conservation organizations as having single-handedly saved. There are two snails, right? The magnificent ram's horn and... The Greenfield ram's horn. Right. The namesake being Greenfield Lake in Wilmington, where it was discovered back in the mid-1800s and then lost to science until 94. When, when a graduate student at UNCW accidentally found it in Town Creek. It's now gone from Town Creek, at least based on surveys that I and others have conducted again, as a consequence of saltwater intrusion. Okay, so let's let's talk about that as an example for a second. And we did an entire episode on these snails several years ago. So if you search Andy Wood and Coastline at whqr.org, you can find that episode and learn all about them. But these are tiny little things. Mm -hmm. And where do they fit in, in the food chain or the larger ecosystem? I realize the food chain is only one part of the ecosystem. But right. But who eats them? Uh, in the case of these two snails, the greenfield ram's horn is a tiny little snail. It's like six millimeters in diameter f for scale, pinky, pinky nail size, tiny. Um, the magnificent ram's horn, as its name implies, is a big snail. It's as big as a shooter marble, a little over an inch in diameter. That still sounds tiny to me. Well, it is small. and But relative to the other one, it's big. It is. And, okay. and even relative to other snails, it's the largest... Uh, air-breathing snail, lunged snail in North America, aquatic lunged snail. So um, where they fit is in a community of other snails. It's not like these two snails are going to make or break the ecosystem. They are 
part of a larger community of snails that contains upwards of 8 to 12 different species, depending on what system you're in, what aquatic system you're in. In the Cape Fear, we've got half a dozen very common snails, and some of them are, are really tiny, little wheel snails that are literally three millimeters in diameter, full grown. All of these snails are feeding on plant matter, primarily, and decom- uh, decomposing to a point some animals, but mostly plant matter. So they're rendering leaves and other vegetation into feces that is pooped out copiously. Snails produce a lot of poop. And that is food for, is loaded with energy. So it's eaten by little tiny organisms, uh, amphipods, ostracods, daphnia, copepods, these little crustaceans, crayfish, related to shrimps and lobsters and crayfish. And these are the planktonic animals that are food for little fishes, guppy-sized fishes, who are in turn food for hand-sized fishes, sunfish, small bass, who are in turn food for big fish, bass, as, as long as your arm almost your lower arm. So big fish. All of these things, these big fish and big animals, they're the ones that are often used as flagship species and remarked as keystone species. And they are important, but not nearly as important as the little guys doing the basic work at the bottom of the food pyramid, providing the energy that's required to climb up the food pyramid all the way to us. And so if you remove that layer of the of the food pyramid, you weaken the structure and everything above drops down a notch. With every species extinction, with all due respect to anybody listening, with every species extinction, our species is moved one step closer to that same fate. And it's really important to understand for perspective. More than 99% of all life that has ever existed on Earth is now extinct. So say that again. More than 99% of all life, plant and animal, that has ever existed on the planet is now extinct. So we are part of a very refined community of plants and wildlife dwelling on this planet. All more than 8 billion of us Why do you think we understand so little about the importance? Like, we can say that we don't want to see a particular species go extinct, and you just explained why, in the case of snails, um, what we do know about how it would affect the food chain. We're all poop eaters, and just humans happen to be like nine or ten times removed from the bottom level of poop, and we'd get closer (laughs) to that if we lost the snails. But... um, we can we can sort of we can grasp that, but there's a lot we don't understand. And people always say unintended consequences. Why do you think we're still at this stage of human evolution so um, ignorant about uh, other species that with which we share the planet? A lot of it has to do with our origins being at odds with the animals around us. Um, we were defending our caves against flat-faced bear dire wolf, saber-toothed lions. So it's, it's been a love-hate relationship um, with humans, as with all animals. You're either 
food or something else is food for you. And so um, that's part of it. The other part is in our environmental education programs, we tend to focus on the big glamorous things. And even if it's a a red-eyed tree frog, which caught the world's attention back in the 1980s and 90s. I love red-eyed tree frogs. They're great. But what about the southern toad here in southeast North Carolina, here in our coastal plain? How is that southern toad no less important than a red-eyed tree frog in the tropical rainforest? So my in answer to your question, part of the problem is we, we focus on the glamorous, but also it's often a focus somewhere else than our own backyard. It's as though we just assume nothing could be interesting enough in our backyard to garner our attention. And the title of the book, Backyard Carolina, is entirely an attempt to dispel that myth. If you go out in your yard and just flip over a a board or a piece of debris that you had forgotten about, there's probably something under there. Might be a centipede, could be a millipede, might be a slug, could be a snail, salamander, ringneck snake, southern toad. There are other things living in our yards. Of course, we need to be careful with with pesticides, the mosquito spray and all, but um, we just don't seem to understand that nature is all around us and we're part of it. And I hope we start to understand that more with this series. You're listening to Coastline. We're introducing our new series in the wild coastal plain with Andy Wood. When we return from this break, we'll hear the first episode. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. As we watch natural areas disappear, we're taking a closer look at what we're losing, species by species, in a new series called In the Wild Coastal Plain. Andy Wood is our guide, and here is our first episode. Our abundant food supply is due in large thanks to the American beaver. You thought it was bees. So did I. And and bees are hugely important, no question. But beavers are right up there with them, considered a keystone species. We'll get to the why of that soon. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn, and this is our first episode of In the Wild Coastal Plain, S-E-N-C. That S-E-N-C is, of course, southeastern North Carolina. Our guide today is Andy Wood. 
He moved to North Carolina in 1982 to direct a summer science camp for the state's Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh. Three years later, he followed his wife to Wilmington. More than a quarter of a century after that, in 2012, he founded Coastal Plain Conservation Group with his son, biologist Carson Wood. Andy is the director. Part of the reason I asked you to wear boots is this has one of the highest densities of cottonmouths that I have seen anywhere. Oh, and, um, <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, closed shoes and long pants are required. And there's one that actually lives right here. Last summer, I'd see him or her essentially every day. He calls them his friends without shoulders. We might investigate the role cottonmouths, a venomous water snake, play in the ecosystem in another episode, but I'm happy to start with our furry aquatic friend and a mammal, the American beaver. And I suppose a very brief explanation of what we're starting in the first place and why we're starting this might be helpful. North Carolina has a fast-growing population, but it's not in the top 10 as of 2023. However, Brunswick County, one of about five counties in North Carolina's coastal plain, is also one of the top 10 fastest-growing counties in the United States. Nearby New Hanover and Pender counties are also seeing rapid expansion. And so we watch the elimination of great swaths of natural areas— home to a wildly biodiverse ecosystem. Through this series, in each episode, we'll meet a different member of the ecosystem, an animal or a plant species, what our guide Andy Wood calls the rivets in the space station, and we'll try to understand how all of these members fit together to create a biodiversity hotspot known as the coastal plain ecosystem. And so we begin with the American beaver. If you've never seen one, we're talking about adult beavers that can weigh between 35 and 60 pounds. Their coats range in color from chestnut brown to black in North Carolina. They have short front limbs. Andy Wood says they're actually arms, and they have webbed hind feet. The state's Wildlife Resources Commission describes a double claw on the second toe of the hind foot that the beaver uses to comb her fur. It's pretty easy to distinguish a beaver from a muskrat. Look at the tail. The beaver has a long, wide, flat tail that it uses to store fat, communicate, and swim. Yes, that's what it sounds like. The muskrat's tail looks like, well, a typical rat tail. What about the otter? They're much smaller than beavers. They have long, lean bodies, and they have a tail that starts out thick at the base but tapers to a point. They're also active during the day, and beavers are largely nocturnal. Today, Andy Wood is taking me through one of the few undeveloped tracts of land remaining in New Hanover County. He describes this patch of land as possibly the most biodiverse area left in the county. The way to think of species, in my mind, the way I think of species, is as rivets holding together the life support system that's keeping us intact here on Earth. So imagine the International Space Station and the, the astronauts that are up there. Every day they 
are looking at individual rivets and nuts and bolts that are holding together the space station. And they understand and appreciate the value of each and every one of those rivets. And if one of them said, hey, you know, we don't need this one here. Really? You, you're willing to lose that rivet in this space station. And the way I view Earth, as, as hokey as this may sound, we're, we're on a starship. Earth is a starship. We're traveling through the Milky Way, circling a star, and the star is traveling through the Milky Way. The Milky Way is traveling through the universe. And when you look at a plant or animal on Earth, it is a rivet holding together the life support system. You can call it an ecosystem if you want. But the fact of the matter is, if we lose all of the plants, if we scraped Earth clean down to just dirt and water, humans would be extinct. So we think we're invincible and we're not. We are wholly dependent on the, the pyramid of life, if you will, that is formed of plants and wildlife, not cattle and dogs, but plants and wildlife. We see a snake, all three of us freeze, Andy, me, and a non-venomous black racer. This is one of our most common snakes, and, and this one that we're looking at right here is about three feet long and an adult, uh, probably four or five years old. And you can see it's a dull black, and that's because it's just coming out of winter dormancy. They don't truly hibernate here. It's just not cold enough. But it's kind of a dull black, and you can see some greenish brown blotches on its scales that's a either a fungal or a bacterial infection that snakes get especially in winter when it's wet so it will molt it'll shed its outer skin kind of like us changing our socks and all of that will come off on the old skin it will be a bright shiny jet black snake chasing lizards small birds mostly rodents other snakes even frogs, they love leopard frogs for lunch. For lunch. Black racers are very fast, hence the name. There are plenty of people who will still say the only good snake is a dead snake. I ask what would happen if we lost the black racer. It's a complex and possibly unanswerable question, but Andy takes a crack at it and, in his quintessential Andy Wood way, winds up making an even more important point. If we lost the black racer, I would know it. And eventually you would be able to recognize changes in the ecosystem in the form of maybe there's more rats, maybe there's more shrews, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, but it makes things unbalanced, if you will. Not that there is ever balance on earth. There isn't, there is no balance. It's totally out of whack naturally, which is what has allowed evolution, which is what has allowed beavers change is the only constant on Earth. We're about to visit a series of beaver ponds that are linked together ecologically, like a necklace. Andy drives us around in a very small all-terrain vehicle. He calls it a buggy. Locals, he tells me, call it a side-by-side. -side. All right, let's go find some beavers.
So we're looking at a classic coastal plain stream. You can see the water is moving fairly slowly and notice that it's a dark tea color. That's tannin. The, the tea color is caused from natural pigments found in all plant parts. When you make a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, you'll see that dark color coming into the water. That's tannin. The soil around the area is richly organic, like a giant tea bag spread on the ground. When it rains, the tannin leaches out of that organic matter into the surface waters, so it stains it this nice, rich color. It's crystal clear, but just stained. It, does, it looks like strong tea. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't taste very good. This is an old ecosystem, thousands of years old. As you see it today, if we were here 6,000 years ago, this is how it would have looked. It would have been cooler 6,000 years ago, says Andy, but we would be looking at the same community of flora. To a beaver that's traveling around, uh, messing around in this creek, it will decide not maybe cognitively like you and I think, but the beaver will be maybe frustrated by the sound of that rushing water. It's like tinnitus and it wants to get rid of it. So it'll jam up some sticks there and maybe push some mud and go off an area. It may travel hundreds of feet away to get a bundle of aquatic plant matter, debris, and bring it back up here cradling it in its front limbs and, and tucked under its chin and dutifully come and stuff it right there under one of the branches that it just stuffed into place and it will create a little log jam, a little starting of a dam. Just like me and kids have done for generations, there's a little rivulet, let's go plug it up. It's the sound of the running water that tells the beaver where to plug up that stream. This particular creek is a tributary to a larger nearby creek, which is a tributary to the Northeast Cape Fear River, which is a tributary to the Cape Fear River, which discharges into the Atlantic Ocean. The beavers working in this stream will engineer essentially the whole length of the stream. And this has been engineered multiple times over the last thousands of years, going back to the the Pleistocene, two and a half million years ago, beavers have been here working. Where we're standing is this little bit of a basin. We're in the creek bottom, the, the drain, if you will. So when the beaver builds the dam, all of this is going to get flooded. Many of the trees we're looking at are wetland adapted. We can see their roots sitting in the creek water. So they'll live for a time. The cypress will be just fine, but many of the other trees are going to drown and die. And this will be a pond, and that's why they will drown and die. That sounds like a failure, right? It's not good if trees are dying. But this is where it gets interesting, because this is how nature works. It will transition into another ecosystem, an aquatic ecosystem, that over hundreds of years, and beaver ponds last that long if the dam is intact. And what happens is silt and sediment coming down the stream accumulates in the bottom of the pond. And over many, many decades, um, and even a couple of hundred years, the sediment decomposes on the bottom, and, or the, the organic matter, building up to become, eventually this will be a meadow, and then it will become 
a forest and then the stream will still be here. It'll be carving through the same area it always has and a new generation of beaver will be here in a couple of hundred years and say, well, what is the deal here? This noisy creek has just got to go and they'll <laughs> plug it up and this will become a pond again. So much of North America's best farmland is so good, especially in the breadbasket area, due to thousands of years of beavers damming little streams formed into ponds that accumulated organic matter to make rich, loamy soil that we grow our crops in. So our uh, abundant food supply is due in large thanks to the American beaver. We're leaving the creek and we're heading now to one of the larger beaver ponds. So this is a beaver pond. This looks otherworldly. <clears throat> it's primordial. It's breathtaking. More than 30 years old, according to Andy, on this slightly overcast, warm, late winter day, bare gray-colored cypress trees reach out of the pond's depths to the silvery blue sky. Ghostly, they reflect on the pond's still surface. All of that material, that's also brought in by beavers. He's pointing to a patch of sticks and leaves and other types of debris about the size of a football. I would never have looked at this small pile and thought, oh, that's beavers. But we have proof. So if you look, you'll see, and there's its paw prints. Oh my goodness. Beaver paw prints. <laughs> I've identified 13 species of fish, freshwater fish in this pond, which is fairly significant for a North American pond. And those are just the ones that I've caught. What do beavers eat? They're strict vegetarian. When you look at a soft wood tree, like a red maple, Andy tells me they harvest the maple and then sever the small stems. He looks around to find an example. This right here, that nice green material, that's the cambium layer. So the beaver will cut this stem and imagine holding a corn cob in your hands and you chew off all the corn from the cob, and that's what the beaver is doing, eating the outermost bark, the thin bark. They don't want to eat this coarse, rough, gnarly stuff. That's the husk. They want the, the nice, lush, green cambium layer, and they will peel that clean, and it'll be a white stem when they're done. And that's their primary diet. They eat some grasses. They'll eat some of the, the other... Uh, plant material, but what they really want is hard chewable stuff because their incisors, their front teeth, are forever growing along with their molars. So if you, f if you have a beaver in captivity and all you feed it is apple and carrot, their incisors will grow to the point where they may bite right through their lower jaw with right. their upper incisor, just like a rat. They're a big rat. In fact, they're the largest rodent in North America. And they live as a tight-knit uh, family unit, 
mother and father kits that stay with them, help build the dam. Eventually, the young will get pushed out so that there's no hanky-panky, but they get pushed out of the out of the family and go find a place to build for themselves. But otherwise, they live as a family unit with the parents directing various activities, reinforcing the dam, maybe reinforcing the lodge, just being beavers. And then eating. They eat and eat and eat. Which is why they're on a do-not-like list for timber owners. And in some of these residential developments, it's common for developers to get rid of beaver dams, even when they occur in natural areas, areas deliberately left natural amid the development. In North Carolina, beavers are regulated by the state's Wildlife Resources Commission. And it is illegal to transport beaver. You can't take beaver from this pond and release them somewhere else. They have to be euthanized. They have to be killed if you're going to get rid of the beavers. You can blow up the dam. Literally, they do with dynamite. The dams are that big. So they'll blow them up or in some way disable the dam. If it's suitable habitat, the beavers are going to come back some other beavers are going to come back. At one time, estimates vary, but we think there were some 40 million beavers in North America before European settlement. That number is way down now, I don't know what it is, but they are removing beaver dams to basically remove backed up water. Around the turn of the 20th century, beavers were on the verge of extinction. Hunters sought their pelts for coats, hats, muffs, collars, and other kinds of trim. According to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, the population made a comeback by the 1950s. There are actually efforts in the western part of the U.S. to restore natural beaver habitat. By removing the dams for other supposedly environmental reasons, scientists now see that humans caused more harm to the environment. Is there any application of that idea to what we're seeing in southeastern North Carolina? A, a, a wildly bizarre idea in many people's minds because the push right now is to remove dams to facilitate fish movement, which I totally get. But in doing that, when you've got an ever-expanding ocean in a coastal plain zone, and we are in the Atlantic coastal plain ecoregion, um, extending from basically Cape Cod to Mobile Bay, Alabama. The ocean is now expanding at a couple of millimeters or rising a couple of millimeters a year. And that translates to meters of horizontal saltwater shift, including upstream in these little creeks. And saltwater is wildly detrimental to freshwater ecosystems. So what the beavers are doing for us is slowing the rate of saltwater intrusion into our coastal streams. Look at Smith Creek and, and the Lower Cape Fear, all those dead Town Creek, all those dead cypress. Those are sentinel trees telling us something's happening. And that something is saltwater intrusion. Those aren't just ghost trees. Those are trees that have died as a consequence, primarily of dredging the Cape Fear River, which used to be six to 12 feet deep. It's now almost 50 feet deep. And, and it's the major river communicating directly with the Atlantic. So we've got lots of salt water coming upstream. Let's just take that in for a moment. Beaver dams slow down the rate of saltwater intrusion in freshwater ecosystems. And in the West, 
the efforts to remove beaver dams from streams to facilitate trout and salmon migration have created a new issue. With climate change, those now uh, streams no longer have impoundments where cool water can remain and where water can collect and slowly percolate through the soil, recharging the aquifer. So they started to recognize that, wow, we're, we're losing aquifer water uh, because our human endeavor is to move water off the land as quickly as possible. And that's really not what nature has evolved these ecosystems to live with. These ecosystems want water to stay put for as long as possible, percolate slowly through the soil so that the water entering the aquifer is nice and clean. So I'm starting to understand why beavers are a keystone species. Beavers are an ally for maintaining water quality, air quality, biodiversity, and flood protection in that this pond will retain millions of gallons of stormwater for a period of time, slowly releasing it into this stream so that downstream homes won't suddenly be awash with a flush of sudden water because much of that water has been contained, briefly anyway, in these beaver ponds. And from here to the Northeast Cape Fear River, I don't know how many beaver ponds there are, but it could be dozens. Not all big. This is a big one. This is like 12, 15 acres. Um, others are just a couple of acres supporting just a couple of beavers. They got their little cabin in the woods. It's a wet cabin, but that's their, their lodge. Remember Andy's earlier analogy about the rivets on the International Space Station, how each one helps to keep the whole system in place? That's biodiversity. The greater the biodiversity of an ecosystem, the more stable it's going to be. Still not in balance, but it'll be more stable. If you remove lots of species, then think cattle out on a field. That's what you end up with, just cattle eating grass. And even that grass isn't enough, the cattle will eventually starve themselves out by overexploiting the resource. So biodiversity is a buffer against resource exploitation. When you clear cut 100 acres to build a subdivision, nothing is left. Every box turtle is gone. Everything is gone the way we're doing it here right now. This is a new model. If you look at Bald Head Island or Avenel in Porter's Neck and many other subdivisions, uh, Pine Valley, so many subdivisions around here had it right 20, 30 years ago. They left the trees. They worked around the trees. But now the developers just come in, scrape the land clear corner to corner, and put down their subdivision, and nothing remains. Andy tells me it's likely that this region was the most biodiverse area anywhere on the Atlantic coastal plain north of Florida, specifically New Hanover, Pender, Brunswick, and Columbus counties, all in southeastern North Carolina. But, he says, New Hanover County probably cannot make that claim anymore. When I moved here in 85, it, it, was, it was heaven for somebody like me. Every day was a new discovery. Every day. And that's the case out here. He means the land we're standing on right now, land that is protected and private. There is something new that I find 
in and around this, this beaver habitat, either a new plant or a new animal I hadn't observed before. If we were to completely eliminate the beavers in southeastern North Carolina, what are some of the consequences that you could predict would happen from that? I know there are, there are unforeseen consequences we wouldn't know about till they happened, but what do you know would happen? Factoring in our burgeoning population, human population, that is drawing greater amounts of water from the aquifer, one of the most uh, poignant consequences of removing beavers will be reduced aquifer recharge. That's one. The other is diminished biodiversity. And the other is uh, diminished stormwater control. These ponds store millions, billions of gallons of stormwater. Even if just briefly, it slows the stormwater moving through the system. And that's what you want. That's what you want. Not to mention being able to find little beaver paw prints in the sand. But that's my own peculiarity. Heartfelt thanks to our guide on this adventure, Andy Wood of Coastal Plain Conservation Group. Thanks also to the folks who allowed us to record on their land. And thank you for listening. And that's this edition of Coastline, Andy Wood. Thanks so much for being our guide in the wild coastal plain. My great pleasure. Thank you. You can find episodes of In the Wild Coastal Plain in the Coastline feed on our website at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered the episode. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.